Hello everyone, this is TD Velasquez, but as always, you can call me Dan, and welcome to what I guess is the third series of And Now the Podcast Starts. The second series ended rather abruptly after only 15 episodes back in February. Without wanting to go into too much detail, some things happened in my personal life which made keeping up a regular schedule of podcast releases rather undesirable, so I stopped doing them. We didn't stop recording them though, because that's always fun and relaxing, and the result of that is that now that we are ready to start the third series we have a backlog of great recordings to share with you and we're going to start the series with a particularly fun episode in which you'll hear almost all of our regular hosts you'll hear a discussion between myself ian and stella to start with and then following that you'll hear a conversation between myself and Howard. So the only one of our regulars who you won't be hearing this episode is the wonderful Kirsty, but you will be hearing from her in the following episode, which is our long-promised episode, discussing Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, which features Ian, Stella, Kirsty, and myself. Um, that's going to be our very next released recording, Um, I know it is, I've promised it before, but this time it's really going to happen because we've actually already recorded it. This episode, however, Sans Kirsty, is going to be a discussion of the first film in the Omen trilogy, the original trilogy of movies released between 1976 and 1981. Stella, Ian and I realise they're all on Disney+. Plus. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can watch them if you haven't seen them. And therefore we'd quite like to revisit the original and the sequels. And having started doing that, I realised that we really needed some input from Howard. So what you're going to hear is a discussion between Stella, Ian and myself initially. And then we're going to have a telephone conversation between myself and Howard about the movie. And the wonderful thing is that Howard, unlike the rest of us, wasn't able to re-watch the film in preparation for the chat. So um, it's kind of delving into some deep memories. Anyway, there's a lot of enthusiasm in this episode. I warn you, we're going to be talking full spoilers from the outset. So if you've never seen the movie, do follow that link. Uh, onto Disney Plus to watch it it's highly recommended because otherwise we're going to to ruin the movie for you Um, right now if you have seen the film before I hope you find lots to enjoy in our chat alright cue the music Podcast starts. Was it a coincidence? Or 
and Boomer. Hello, dear listener. Welcome to the podcast on which we talk about horror. Sometimes we talk about other things, and sometimes we swear. This week, we're definitely talking about something horror. It's the first discussion we're going to have of all three films in the Omen trilogy. We're talking about The Omen from 1976. I have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Stella Gaynor. Hello, Stella. Hello, Dan, uh, I'm going to front this by saying I've been ill, so I'm sorry to you and Ian and anybody listening for the coughing I'm inevitably going to do. <laughs> oh, bless you, you poor thing. Um, as, as Stella just suggested, we're also joined by the writer and critic oh, yeah. Ian Winterton. Hello. Hello, Ian. Hello. Um, sorry to hear you're, you're ill, Stella, but bless you. Thank you for turning up. Um, <laughs> you could have you could have cried off, but we appreciate no, no. your presence. No, I'm all right. I just, um, yeah, I've just got the residual cough hanging on at the end, which people love when you're on public transport and you're, and you're coughing. <laughs> people are still like giving me this evil side eye and it's like, oh, it's just a cold. Leave me alone. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh well, I've I've not had a cough for a, a few weeks, and um, just just beginning to forget what it felt like to be ill, which can only mean that I'm due. Oh yeah, bat. any minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, how are you, Ian? Are you all right? I'm good. My health is amazing. So. <laughs> wow. Oh, have you never yeah. have you never been sick a day in your life? <laughs> I haven't. I've been <laughs> I've been sick for several weeks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Right. Okay. Fair enough. That, that's <laughs> reassuring. Okay. So the good thing about the group of us tonight is that we've all uh, rewatched The Omen. I think, haven't we? We'd all seen yeah. it before, but we've rewatched it for this, Yesterday. the 1976 film. But also, exactly half of us have seen the 2006 remake because Ian's seen it, Stella hasn't seen it, and I've seen half of it. So. <laughs> So that means we can comment uh, yeah. slightly on that. I, I, I don't think it will merit a lot of comment because it's a very um, similar film to the original, but we'll see how it goes. So discussing the original Omen, which was a, a very significant movie for me, I saw it in my teens, but let's start with Stella. How did you first discover this movie? So the Omen, like lots of the horrors that we end up going back to around the 70s for so the omen um the changeling what else have we talked about all the similar things i think like the medusa touch all those kinds of films they were all films that i watched at home in the afternoon with my mum with my mum saying watch this and me being very very young so i don't i can't quite put a finger on how old i was when i first saw it but i was definitely in primary school <laughs> um right. And it was one of them where, it, whenever it was on telly, my mum was always watching it. So I, I saw it, I, I'd always watch it too. And then uh, I don't think I watched it for a, a while after that. And then I re-watched it again, maybe about 10 years ago in a sort of, is it still good or does it still, you know, is it is it still worth a watch? And I was um, pleasantly surprised about how many sequences, that I'm sure we'll get to in more detail in a bit, um, still genuinely creepy, still found genuinely, you know, bothered me. And did that carry through this time when you watched it again? Yeah, absolutely. And I started to think a little bit more about what it was in the construction of the film that made those sequences scary. So, you know, mainly I think it's the sound design 
is absolutely spot on. But you know, we'll get get to that in a in a little bit. Yes, I'm sure we absolutely will. How about you, Ian? How did you first discover the omen? Do you know what? I have no idea. As you're asking that to Stella, I was going. <laughs> I think I've always seen this film. I've somehow I can't remember most films. I do have quite a clear idea of when I first watched them. I'll tell you I, what, I've got a specific I, I think, question. We know yeah. that your favourite movie is The Exorcist. Did yeah. you see The Omen before or after The Exorcist? Do you remember? I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know. Because I, I definitely saw it before because The Exorcist was banned for so yeah, long. Yeah, same. I didn't yeah. see The Exorcist till I was like 18, 19. But I remember watching The Exorcist very clearly mm. because we got, we got a VHS of it. And it was still illegal, and we watched it at uni, and it was a seminal moment in my life because right. it's like we brought the devil into our house, and uh, <laughs> and house, you did the whole house uh, <laughs> wouldn't go to sleep. But I think the omen, I just I just can't remember. I think it's it's a bit like the Beatles or something. It's kind of always been there. I, right. and, I, and, I, and I really like it, but I just couldn't tell you when I first saw it. <laughs> maybe that's normal. Maybe that's normal. I've, I know is I've certainly seen it a lot of times, and I really like it. I just really well, like that. That's really tickled me. The Omen. It's a bit like the Beatles. <laughs> bit like Hendrix, man. They're just always well, timeless. I can't imagine a can't imagine a time when I hadn't heard their music. Let me just. I'll just say this: there are as many albums of the Omen in my collection as there are Beatles albums. So with me also, it's a bit like the Beatles. <laughs> Yes. Right, right. Um, That's the subheading for this episode. Right. <laughs> it's like the Beatles. So, for my story, then, um, I saw it as a teenager. I think I, I, I must have been shortly before I met you, Stella, because it was shortly before I started college. Because I was kind of obsessed with the Omen, and I remember that in the first week of sixth form college, you know, when they induct you and teach you how to use the computers and all that. I remember yeah. typing on the. <laughs> on the learning resource center computer when the Jews return to Zion and the star falls <laughs> from the sky. Um, it was just going round and round in my head. And I loved it to bits. Um, and, and I have a weird memory that the day after I saw it, which must have been on a Saturday night on Channel 4, I went to church the next morning, which is an apposite place. I was supposed to have a conversation about the open, but a lady... It was the mum of a friend of mine, but also was one of the musicians in the church orchestra. Was like, going, "Oh, you've watched The Omen? It's one of my favourite films." Um, <laughs> and I just remember that kind of that that sweet tweeness, yeah. um, a little bit with like with your mum, Stella. It's yeah. um, uh, even though it's it's kind of playing with as potentially. Potentially dangerous, thought-provoking, spiritual themes. It's kind of cozy, and especially if you you're, you're raised in the kind of Christian environment, there's something about it which is it's so straightforward that I think people kind of can unpretentiously kind of fall in love with it, even yeah. though it's in some ways it's quite a nasty horror film. Mm. Well, that the, all the churchiness, all the the Catholicness about it, I think. Being, you know, growing up in in a Catholic house and going to a Catholic school, and I sang in a in a choir, and we used to sing songs in Latin and stuff. So all mm. of all of the imagery and sounds in the film were recognisable because you know I knew I knew the stories, I knew 
<laughs> to sing in Latin. Um, so, you know, it, I think that's one of the reasons it resonated and really landed well with me when I was a kid. Right. It was stuff I was familiar with, the big imposing church and, and all that kind of stuff. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. And then, it happened again. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. 20th Century Fox presents a film of psychological suspense about an occurrence of earth-shaking importance. Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. I was at the hospital, Mr. Thorne, the night your son was born. I saw its mother. I saw its mother. I have fears. I have fears. What kind of fears? It's mother, Mr. Thorne. It's on my wife. It's mother. What is it you're trying to say? His mother was a... This is not a human child. Make no mistake. There are those who will die for him. There are those who will kill for him. Who is he? What does he want? Where did he come from? And can he be stopped? Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. If this is the truth, where does it end? So, for listeners who have not actually seen The Omen, uh, I, I will just summarise the plot. It's fairly simple. Um, uh, a US ambassador to Britain, played by Gregory Peck, um, is lured into a Faustian bargain without realising it, I guess, when his um, his son, or his wife rather, gives birth to their son who, who immediately dies. Um, but rather than break this awful news to his wife, he is given an alternative option by the priest. It's uh, the the hospital that this is taking place at is in Rome, and a rather creepy priest kind of says, <laughs> "Look, it's okay. You know, a woman's just died in the hospital immediately after giving birth, and her son even looks kind of like your son. Why don't you just <laughs> tell your wife it's hers?" And he goes, "All right, all right." <laughs> <laughs> He sold um, for just about 10 seconds, and he's like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, well, that's one thing about this whole film. It's really brisk, isn't it? It doesn't yeah, it, kind of dwell on any point. It, it It's always moving. Um, and as the child, so they, they raise the child as their own, but as he grows older, um, sinister things abound, um, and, and sinister witnesses appear to testify that maybe he's not all that he seems, and we grow, we grow to learn that he is, in fact, the son of Satan. Oh, um, 
<laughs> so, so basically, um, basically, we are now going to be spoilerific, aren't we? Because it's very hard to talk about this. Nineteen seventy-six. I think we're all right. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I think so. Yes, I don't think there's there's any way to talk about it without the fact that he's the son of Satan is fairly obvious from the poster. Yeah, well, I yes. think the. Um, <laughs> The omen and and certainly the name Damien and the devil yeah. child and stuff entered popular culture anyway. And I think pe- even people who'd never seen the film knew who Damien yeah. was and knew well, that he was. I was, about, I was about to say, I think my first experience of it probably was Only Fools and Horses. Well, that's yeah, well, what I was, was going to say, in Only that, Fools yeah. and Horses. Was, yeah. was, was, was the fact that we all got that joke. We knew Damien yeah. was the devil child. Yeah. Well, what? What's weird though, I, hadn't is seen, that I don't think I'd seen the film. In, in yeah. Only Fools and Horses, whenever Damien the Child is mentioned or appears, <laughs> they use that Carmen Nabarana music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of that, that choral did it, did Latin a close music. up on Rodney's yeah. face. <laughs> it's going to be a boy on 90s. Can't be sure of anything, son. No, it's a boy. Mars and something else have come into conjunction and decided that he will be born in Peckham. It's a boy! But yeah, as yeah. a result of that, though, people think that that music is the theme tune from The Omen. And it's yeah, it yeah. isn't. No, yeah. it's, that's the one they use in uh, Excalibur, is it not? Oh, it's Carmine Nebrana. It's too long since I've seen Excalibur. I think it might be. Right, okay. I mean, the the, the whole score of Excalibur is made up of beautifully chosen classical pieces, so that would make sense. But um, (laughs) Carmine Nebrana will always be the theme of Damien, but not Damien from the Omen, Damien from (laughs) Only Fools and Horses. From Rodney Trotter's mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I wasn't. Carmine Nebrana is in Excalibur. I knew I wasn't okay. imagining it. Good stuff. Nice one. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's why I mainly associate that music for. As we're going to kind of spoil the film, but just to contextualize it, uh, for those who listeners who may not have watched it and can't be bothered to watch it, basically the the, the plot mechanism of the movie is that anyone who seems to suspect Damien's true nature um, is basically killed. So therefore, throughout the film, there are spectacular sequences of deaths. Um, mm. That's kind of what the movie is built around. And it's a really early example of um, Stella's doing some wonderful mimes <laughs> of the different ways people die. Um, it's a really uh, early example of the kind of body count movie where yeah. every 20 minutes someone dies spectacularly. And I think that... that really spectacularly. Uh, yeah. Yes, it, that's the other thing to say. It's a big budget movie at the time. It's um, a proper studio horror movie of which until The Exorcist, you know, these things didn't really get made with a lot of money. It's got big stars in it. It's made in Brit- in Britain, but with American money. Um, and... Um, yeah, and the special effects are still pretty astonishing mm. um, in, in the creation of those spectacular deaths and just the overall production, or most of it, not not quite all of it. Um, and I I think it's interesting as well because it's um, it kind of comes right at the end of the tradition of the British horror film. You know, it was released in the same year as the last Hammer film. Mm. Um, to the devil, a daughter. It's got actors in it, most of the sporting cast, like Billy White, Lauren, David Warner, and Leo McKern. 
of people who had been in Hammer films over the years and Patrick Troughton. Um, but it kind of signals the end of that era and it single signals the beginning of the body count era of kind of slasher horror, I think. Yeah. So mm. it, it, it's an interesting locus point. But also it's weird because it's even though it's got those people in it and it's made in Britain, it's not made by British people. It's kind of all new talent. And and the like Richard Donner, who directed it, uh, his next film after this was Superman, which even more so uh... I think, he, and he got that job because he'd done The Omen so well. And I think that is even more kind of a forefather of current cinema, really. All superhero movies kind of go back to the 1978 Superman. So, yeah. yeah, but also it had a lot of Shepperton Studios, which obviously was Superman and Star Wars and that whole right. British film industry thing. A lot of a lot of The Omen was. You know, Donna was working at Shepperton Studios, um, so it sort of ties in. It ties into that that sort of blockbuster era that it was sort of an early part of, and we, we maybe don't reel off in the sort of list of big blockbusters that changed Hollywood forever. We don't. We maybe don't think of The Omen as readily as we do Star Wars and Superman and Raiders of the Lost Ark and the like. Yeah, but The Omen was definitely. Uh, it, it did well, <laughs> did the Omen. Yeah, and it was a big hit, wasn't it? And although mm. it was, I, I think in some ways, um, you know, a, a cash in almost on The Exorcist. It's like, what else can we do with the devil and children? I mean, the three mm. of us have already talked about Rosemary's Baby on here as well, yeah. so mm-hmm. that that kind of fits into that progression. Um, but you know, The Omen was phenomenally successful enough to to create loads of imitators of its own, mm-hmm. um, just as The Exorcist produced loads of possession movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the 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 Omen. I mean, I, I love the, the Omen, but the Omen is the Omen is a sort of Hollywood, almost sanitized version of The Exorcist. And obviously, The Exorcist is a Hollywood movie, but it was very much uncompromising. It mm. it was it was horrible, and it did what it wanted. Uh, whereas the omen is, you know, you, you can sit and watch it with your mum a lot more <laughs> yeah. than can the Exorcist because yeah. it's 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 a it's a brilliant film, but it's very much uh, it's a sort of Shawshank redemption of horror films. It's uh, it's 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 solidly made and doesn't scare the horses uh, yeah. for most <laughs> most of that. It's got Even, that kind of... I, I, don't, don't get me wrong, I love it because they've set out to do a thing, and the thing mm. they've done is very, very good. But it's it's a very, you know, it's a very palatable, crowd pleasing horror movie. Mm. Um, it's not it's like exactly... the other horror movie. It's not. It's not. It's not. Um, it's it's not taboo busting or anything like that. I would argue. No, I would. I would say I think it's exactly the kind of horror film that you'd expect Gregory Peck to appear in. You know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's a reason why he never did any other horror. Well, I'd say I'd. What I was about to say, I'd say Cape Fear was almost a horror movie. Um, and so he's oh, okay. Mm. So he's it's it's definitely uh it's it's definitely a scary serial killer movie and of its age. But yeah, Gregory Peck's casting. He always he is he is one of those actors that is is himself, even though he's not playing himself. But he's his screen persona does not really change mm. movie to movie you know he is so straight up and you can trust him there's just even seeing him 
making a bad decision at the beginning is quite unusual for a Gregory Peck movie. <laughs> it really yeah. is a bad decision. <laughs> but it's yeah, yeah, it's it's quite a bad decision. But but it's it's also I mean I just love it because it's you know it's the it's the sort of sin at the heart of you know it's a it's a massive deception right at the heart that unravels everything right from the beginning mm. and and he makes a bad decision for a good reason which is a great thing for a for a for a you know for your protagonist to do I think um, it would be a good idea for a, a good time for us to start talking about our impressions of, of the movie, um, watching it again. I think you were going in that direction, Ian. Um, mm-hmm. um, I will challenge you and say, I, although my, my teenage self would have disagreed vehemently, and it's very good in some ways, I, I don't think it's the best script in The Omen. Um <laughs> Uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that, um, and, and I'll return to that theme. But Stella, what what did you think of it? Kind of watching it again now. I mean, the, you, you, said you still enjoyed it. I did still enjoy it, and the the there's two main things that I think really stand out for me in the film. The first one you mentioned before, the death sequences, is very elaborate sort of set piece deaths that occur over the film. And two of them in particular. So the priest, Father Brennan, when he dies with the oh, yes. lightning rod that falls off and he doesn't just step out of the way when I'm sure he could do and it impales him. And then we have <laughs> our photographer, um, uh, what's he called? Keith Jennings. Keith Jennings, guy. played by David Warner, yeah. And I love his character. He's fantastic. <laughs> um, yes, but he's when he, he gets decapitated by a sheet of glass. And those two deaths, really reminded me of um, Final Destination. It okay. felt very much like that in that sort of, you can't see what's coming, things are building up in this, it, you know, they both start, or certainly Father Brennan starts with, it's just got a bit windier, <laughs> or you're obviously going to die, and then he's running around, and the lightning striking, and all that kind of stuff, and then he dies. <laughs> in a way that's almost accidental but not and then the same with um Jennings like 
you know, you see the guy get out of the truck and he his arm sort of takes off the handbrake and then, you know, yeah. just, it puts into action these, the, well, these other actions, these are the little faults that cause the death. And it was yeah. like, oh, that's just what Final Destination does over and over and over again. So I'd, I'd be interested to see if the makers of Final Destination were inspired by that at all. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. The other thing I mentioned before as well is is the sound mix and the way it's all put together in terms of sound. So we've mentioned, so the score is incredible and haunting, but when you also get that squelchy synth noise when we first see the dog, just for the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> And all the rest of the score is this very big, epic, orchestral sound. Then you just get these little pockets of synth, which are really nice. And then when Father Brennan, it is Brennan, isn't it, is in uh, Gregory Peck's office, Ambassador Thorne's office, and as he says, his mother was a jackal, and you can't hear him say jackal, but you see his mouth. And I I remembered that when I watched it when I was a kid, I didn't get the word jackal. Mm-hmm. at all it, I was, that was lost on me and then one more thing that stood out is when um Jennings is developing the photographs he's in his uh what do you call it dark room there's a ticking clock on that bit it's like there's a clock in his dark room oh, or whatever yeah. but it's a yeah. very loud tick and I think it's quite mm. an interesting audio cue to you know it's quite a simple one to be saying you know look you're running out of time you need to go and yeah yeah out. and it's very simple but it's so and it, it the like the ticking clock just drops out of the sound mix as soon as the scene changes. Mm. It doesn't over that, that audio doesn't overlap, which I think a more contemporary film might overlap that audio of the ticking clock, but they don't. They mm. just drop it out, and it's just while he's in the. Dark it's got room. it's got a lot of hard cuts, which yeah. I think, um, which is, which is sort of adds to the sort of it unsettles you constantly. Yes, it's absolutely. constantly going from noisy to silent to yeah. silent mm. to noisy. Yeah, and, and you really, end up sort of really... turning the TV up and down because it's like, well, now they're muttering and in the next yeah, minute yeah. it's going to be, you know, a priest running around and, and getting impaled on a, on a lightning rod. Here's a lightning yeah, rod, yeah. isn't it, that big stick? Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah no. so they're, they're the things on the rewatch that, that I was uh, I particularly enjoyed. Yeah, uh, yeah. Two things I want to mention about the, that you've just reminded me of there, Stella. While I was watching it <laughs> yesterday, on the 28th of March... Um, that I, I discovered that I was watching the film on the 36th anniversary of the actor Patrick Troughton's death. So the actor who plays Father Brennan, I was watching the film on the anniversary of his death. Oh, and also, the and then later, <laughs> later in the film as I was watching it, just shortly before the Keith Jennings gets his head sliced off scene, there was a knock at my door. And I went and opened the door, and there was a man there who said, I've got some bad news for you. I said, okay, what, what's that? He said, you've left your car lights on. Ah, no! <laughs> and I went, all right. And then he said, but also, and this is maybe a bit worse, you've got some loose lights on your roof. Oh, now, my God. If they get blown off, they're going to come down like a guillotine on your head. <laughs> so I suddenly had like omen-like images 
from the roof of these slates. So I was <laughs> spent the rest of the day kind of carefully moving under the gutter to make sure that I I was not in range of any of the slates, which are loose, by the way. And the guy who who said that is a lovely bloke who just lives. Uh, so he's the site manager of the school across the road, and he'd noticed from his office that our roof slates were dangerous. So he came wow. all the way over to warn me, bless him. Um, but wow. he, but he didn't know that I was near, so an agent of Satan. He yeah. didn't know that I was near, near the end of the omen. It was not the best time to, to bring me this kind of news. And it just was such a, um, yeah. just like yeah. a quarter moment. But uh, yeah. Excellent. But, uh, but it does kind of go to the idea that there's something about the omen that, that has a power in the world whenever you revisit it. And, you know, that sequence with Father Brennan, um, ever since I've seen that, whenever I'm outside and a wind suddenly blows <laughs> up, I think, oh, my God, somebody's angered Satan. <laughs> it you wasn't know, me. <laughs> um, is yeah. there anything else, Stella, that, that struck you before we move to Ian? and? <laughs> No, that's all, all of my uh, badly scrolled notes. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, Ian, how about how about you this time? How how did the well, film? I've watched it quite a lot. Of, and... I've watched it quite a lot of times, and I think I've watched it not very long ago. Um, mm. But it's still, it always. I know you're about to say that. I get. I guess in terms of the script, may, maybe it's not got like the most amazing lines in it, but just in terms of the structure, it's really good and it really powers along. Mm. And I think, I think it really reveals the the sort of plot quite. You know the the, the underlying conspiracy. I mm. think it reveals it in quite a quite a nifty little way. The sort of thing that you know is very hard to do. Till you've actually tried to write a script yourself, it's actually hard to yeah. drip drip that sort of information as effectively as they do. And the fact that much much like with the Exorcist, where you know where you have to get to the midpoint and here you have i guess i guess it's the it is when his wife gets put in the hospital that's sort of the final straw mm. um, and from that point on he's going to kill damien um uh so just just the way they do it and and, the, and the, there are some brilliant shocks like i always remember even as it that when they open the grave and they see the jackal they see yeah. the skeleton of the jackal where the mother should be. Mm. That's brilliant. And then when they were, then they just very simply show a baby's skeleton with the with a yeah. hole in the skull. Murdered him. They murdered him as soon as he was born. Murderers. Murderers. Just you know, this for what I was saying before. This is quite a cozy Hollywood horror. It's mm. still a horror. That's still yeah. horrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, very effectively done. Um, it's kind of, kind of tastefully done, but it is done. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I do agree with you about the structure of the script. I think the way <laughs> the the story builds and escalates is actually brilliant. Um, mm. And considering that the writer David Seltzer would later admit that he would he did it completely as a hack job he did it for the money he wasn't particularly interested he's not involved with the sequels um <laughs> and although he's credited as writing the remake he had nothing to do with that it was a purely um 
a writer's guild decision that the scripts that they had written was not different enough. The poor, the poor person that did the writing job on that can't be credited as the writer. Dan McDermott, yeah. yeah. Although, to be fair, I don't think he did a lot of writing. <laughs> I think but, maybe the the good. Basically, I've not, as I said, I've not seen the all of the remake. Um, and maybe there's there's some great deviations later, but most of the first half is just like the same scenes as the original, but with a few it's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's is totally. But then they do have bits like he he threads in the Pope dying at the same time as yeah as uh and and things. So that that's a whole you could argue unnecessary element. They kept doing that with remakes, like with the horse on the ship in the ring and things like that. Um, They kept kept remaking things and then, and then it's like, well, if you're going to remake it, it's a simple film and it works really well, but you're Hollywood and you feel like you've got to add something that doesn't add anything to it and actually makes, slows the plot down. But anyway, but, um, but uh, we're not really here to talk about the remake, but the remake remake is actually very effective. If you've never seen The Omen, it's a perfectly Mm. decent film. And it I think does a have lot a good cast. Backlash against it. Yeah, the backlash against it was people going, "Why have you made this film? I've already seen a million times. Show it to a bunch of kids." Um, mm. It's the same as Gus Van Sant's Psycho in a way. It's yeah. uh, it's a perfectly decent film because the because the plot's the same. Yeah. I, I don't want to harp on about it, but watching it felt more like kind of you know seeing a new production of a play that you've seen before. Everything yeah, about yeah. The, the look of it is different, the staging and everything, but it's the same script. Um, oh, I, yeah, I yeah. just wish that the Writers Guild had maybe been a bit kinder to the to, to the actual writer. Maybe the credit should have said written by David Seltzer with additional scenes by or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that, you know, because that's kind of what it felt like watching it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's weird uh, because, you know, you go on IMDb and it's just David Seltzer. Yeah. Who, uh, lifted not a finger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully got some nice money. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but as a, what I was saying is, although it's hack work, you know, by his own admission, it's really effective in terms of the way the plot builds. Things like the the layering in of Keith Jennings taking the photos and then developing them and seeing the marks on them and then piecing together the marks with the, the ways that people have died and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And and almost well, pretty much every scene advances the plot in some way. It's really well done like that. There's no fat on it. I also noticed it was funny, you know, when um Keith Channings actually dies, um, mm. I kind of expected them to intercut like a shot of where he developed a photograph of himself with the slash across his neck. Mm. I thought I thought if this was a modern movie, and maybe they do this in, re- in the remake, I'm not, I don't know because I've not seen that far. Um, but I kind of thought they'd have like a very quick, like one second flashback of that image to remind you, ah, you've already seen it. Yeah. His head was going to get sliced off, but they don't do that, which I thought was really nice. Yeah, and, I, and... I, I haven't rewatched the 2006 one, but I do. I, I don't think so because it's quite memorable that scene because it's David Tulis who. Mm. Who's? Because I remember interviewing him not long after it. There's, there's the clang. For clang. <laughs> and he was just saying, "Oh yeah, it was good fun doing that because you got to go somewhere sunny." And he said, "And it was my, uh, it was uh, my third decapitation on. Because he'd been decapitated in Harry Potter, he'd been decapitated, oh, right. and I think he was decapitated in like 
thing I was interviewing for was this awful God, what was it called? Um sequel to Basic Se- Instinct 2. Basic Instinct, yeah. So I was interviewing wow. for Basic Instinct 2. Oh amazing. Um, all the films, <laughs> all the films I got to meet my hero for. Um actually- <laughs> I got to interview him for Basic Instinct 2. So we spent a lot of time not talking about Basic Instinct 2. But I have a oh, feeling wow. he got beheaded in that. Maybe. I, I can't remember. Um, but I do remember having great fun with that movie. But I remember him just sort of saying it, how many times he, he keeps getting beheaded. But something so you said that made me realise, you know, I was talking about the, the, the omen and the fact that most of the cast were like hammer horror veterans in it, whereas in mm. the remake of The Omen, um, the, the veterans you've got are Gambon and David Thewlis, Michael Gambon, David Thewlis, who are both from Harry Potter, because that was the nearest thing to like a film industry we had in Britain at the at the time. So like, oh, I suppose, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you want to come and do your your Yanks know who you are? Do you want to come and be an hour? <laughs> do you want to come and be in yeah. this movie? bit of easy money? Um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> is there is there anything else about the movie apart from the script that you want to point out as being really strikingly praiseworthy here? I mean, I've got some things as well. I just really, I mean, I really do like the deaths. I think they really are good. Um, mm. And I mean, it's funny because you, you know, that I did it all for you, Damon. It's yeah. a brilliant moment. The, the nanny is, yourself. The nanny is great. Brilliant. And it's 30 minutes in. That's how lean this that's how lean mm. the script is. Thirteen minutes in, and you feel like you're already part of this world, and you know the setup, and you're still shocked when a nanny, a nanny dies, and it's only been thirteen minutes into the film. Um, you know, I think it really—it's uh, just a really impressively, impressively watchable film. Mm. Um, and 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 I do I do genuinely find it scary, not yeah. in the same way as The Exorcist, which really gets under my skin. And I think that's mm. because the sound design in The Exorcist, amongst other things, is incredible. Like, mm-hmm. far surpasses this. But I think there is just something very simply the bits, the bits in the the bits in the graveyard in Italy really always get me. Yeah, devil yeah. dogs always get me. Um, um, but yeah, there's just something really compelling about it, and it's a really good detective film yeah. in a way. Yeah. It's really it's good. A, yeah. How do we how do we solve this? Yeah. And it it's 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 narrative engine really works and is mm. you know really chunters along. Well, um, I would agree with you about the deaths. Um, I noticed this time I'd forgotten about this. Mrs. Baylock's death, I remember being you know, uh, striking, but I didn't realize she got stabbed in the head by two different infl- implements. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. And I, I kind of had to rewind that bit. Yeah, well, she's another person. I mean, Billy Whitelaw is just incredible. She's brilliant. She yeah, yeah, absolutely, she is. Um, and and, and the, probably the, I mean, you know, so it, it, we sort of take it for granted, but these are like horror classics. Just yeah. you know, the yeah. scary satanic nanny. And maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe they've been maybe we suffer a bit because they've been they've been a sort of lampoon so often, and she's mm. appeared hot fuzz and things like that, and we've oh. had. And we've had all the uh, repossession, repossessed movies and scary movies, and 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 you know, not to mention like Hot Fuzz does the whole. I realised as I was watching it, I was expecting 
I was expecting more masonry to fall on Patrick Troughton. <laughs> right, because you're thinking of Adam Buxton. Because of Hot Fuzz. And I was like, oh, no, it's a spike, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Yeah, of course. I never realised that myself, actually. Um, so things that I love about it, which is a lot, I'd, I'd agree with pretty much everything both of you have said. Um, I think that um, if people who have not seen it before are afraid of, uh, well, not afraid, but, you know, not keen to watch it because they feel like it, they know it, it's been lampooned and whatever. I think the leanness of the storytelling and the quality of the visuals and the sound and mm. really gets you through it. I've harped on about the, the Jerry Goldsmith score before. It was one of my picks on our music episode. Hello, folks. Editor Dan here. Something I didn't mention during the discussion that we recorded, but which I now realise I should talk about stroke own up to is that when I was a university student I was so obsessed with this soundtrack that I used it as the basis for a short film. As a filmmaker I was of limited talent and I had a single theme of which I made several variations. That theme was Ordinary Man is Attacked by malevolent household objects. Therefore I made a movie called Terror of the Many Coloured Slinky, which was based around music from The Omen. Um, it still exists. Um, I'm weirdly proud of it, even though it's nonsense, and it is on YouTube. So I'll include the link to the video in the show notes, should you want to sample it. I made that movie when Jerry Goldsmith was still alive, and I failed to send him an apology, something which I dare say will continue to haunt me. Anyway, it's there, and should you check it out, I hope you enjoy it. Now back to the discussion. I think it's worth saying that, you know, the producers got an extension to the budget specifically so they could hire Goldsmith. Um, you know, the, the movie would have been exactly the same, but not sounded as good. Um, oh. and well, I, th I think I probably Donald... said, or I, I listened to the soundtrack while I'm writing mm. quite often. Because it's just brilliant, absolutely. Not me too. It creepy, um, creepy as hell. Yeah. I like it. I've been driving around with it playing, which is maybe not too advisable. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think Richard Donner probably knew Jerry Goldsmith because they both worked on the Twilight Zone in the sixties. Yeah. Um, and, and he basically went to the studio and said, "We know, no, we need the big score." And I think the score is what makes the movie live. Yeah. Um, and it and it did win an Academy Award. It's the only Goldsmith score that did that. Um, yeah. It's just incredible, and I've listened to that soundtrack over and over again over the years. Um, I think in terms of the kind of pace of it and the clarity of the storytelling and and, and you know the quality of the, those kind of hard cuts that you were talking about, Ian. Um, it is edited by Stuart Baird, the in, the English film editor, who's basically the greatest film editor of all time. Um, and and there's loads of movies that he's not credited on that he would come and work over because he was the guy that studios would go to to fix movies that weren't working. Mm. But he, he worked a lot with Richard Donner and he edited Superman. Then he edited, I think, at least the first two Lethal Weapons um, and just loads and loads of films before before he, he kind of moved into directing. Um and uh, 
yeah, I, I don't think I have a problem at all with any of the the shots or, or or any of the storytelling decisions in it, apart from just some things in the script. So I've I've mentioned this a couple of times, so I should kind of explain. I just think the the script is is a, is a really is a well told story that pulls you through, but I feel like it makes me ask questions that then the film doesn't answer. So like it makes me ask how. Would Catherine feel if she found out that her husband had, had betrayed her in this way, but she never does? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I feel it's it's weird for for the movie not to include that perspective. Um, it also makes me ask the question: like, how does Keith Jennings seem to be a great journalist? He's doing all this detective work when he's not a journalist; he's a photographer. <laughs> and, well, and also the amazing the amazing bit where um. After Father Brennan has died, there's a newspaper front headline of it that says Priest has died, and there's a picture of him dead <laughs> on the spike. <laughs> and and a detail which I did like is that that photo was clearly taken by Keith Jennings because you see it in the background hung up in his dark room. Yeah, but it's like, why would they put that on the front of the paper? Why would they even put it anywhere in the <laughs> paper? A brutal picture to put on the paper. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, um, I did. I did think that. I did think, blimey. I know. Yeah, it's a bit strong. Maybe I see a dead body on an actual dead body on the front of a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, and then like <laughs> later in the movie, when they, they go to the city, the town of Megiddo in the city of Jezreel, which I love all that stuff. But then mm. they find Bokenhagen, who's great, played by Leo, Leo McCann in that an uncredited cameo. But mm. I, this time, which I've never done before, I found myself asking, who the hell is he? And why doesn't he go with them? He basically goes, your son is the son of Satan. You must kill him. It's your problem. Have the yeah, daggers. Like, and then he's not... <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah, he's just he, gone. Because uh, we're going to do Exorcist 2, uh, sorry, um, Omen 2 another yeah. day, but I watched, I watched the beginning of it today, and it start, It opens with Leo McKern in yeah. carrying on directly, and they actually have and, a line where he says he tries to get someone else to go and do it. And he's like, because yeah. I'm too old. So he, <laughs> he, so he says, like, they, do, they do that thing. He's too old to go and do it. He's yeah, like, yeah, 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 I'm a, a stay-at-home Van Helsing. I can't go out <laughs> and do it. But it's weird that in the can. first film... I've got the daggers. In the first film, in The Omen, they'd obviously not thought of that because he doesn't look particularly old. No. Whereas in the, in the second one, which is set a week later, he has got old age makeup on. He's like, I'm too old, I'm, I'm old. too ill. I'm it's old. like someone somebody thought there's a plot hole here that we have to fix. Yeah, it's like he's yeah. just sat um, with the knives going, oh my God, will somebody come and get the knives? <laughs> because yeah. I don't want to do it. The, yeah. uh, uh, the only one teeny tiny problem I have with it, and it's with the script. Is it the script or is it Gregory Peck's delivery of it? that when Kathy is in the hospital and he goes to visit her and she's saying, don't let him kill me, he's just leaning over going, Kathy, Kathy, <laughs> Kathy. Don't let him kill me. Don't let him kill me. Cassie. 
<laughs> he doesn't actually say anything else to comfort his wife apart from Kathy. And he's like, just telling your lover anything. Or, oh, yeah, sorry. sure, I'll look after you. Like, don't you, don't you worry, Kathy. I did, and I, I, I did. Um, <laughs> since we're into the picking holes part, I did think it's quite funny the fact that she's got her. She's she's sort of had her arm broken, and it and it's quite comedically sticking up in the air and then he kisses the end of her fingers <laughs> instead of leaning in to give her a kiss he kisses the end of her fingers like he can't be bothered to bend down but you know gregory I've, gregory I've... peck uh what a, what a you know perfect casting yeah. No, he is he is great. Although, um, you know, <laughs> I think when we talk about the Omen two, um, we'll compare William Holden's performance in that to him because I think that there's a bit more shade there. But mm. um, yeah, I just think if you again, without knocking the remake and talking too much about the remake, I just think it's interesting or unfortunate maybe that they made a remake that is so close to the original. Whereas I feel like it's kind of begging for a remake, which is a similar story, but told from the wife's point of view. Oh yeah. I'd watch that. Yeah. Ian, do you write it? Come on. I did think, would that be too close to Rosemary's baby? You know, like nah. uh, my husband has betrayed me and, and I've fallen into Satanist shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you <laughs> what, leave, leave Schreiber is no good. <laughs> You know, Julia Julia Stiles is an amazing actress. Uh, David Fulis, amazing. Pete Postlethwaite, amazing. Mia Farrow, amazing. Leave Schreiber is not Gregory Peck. Um, um, I think I think Leave Schreiber is a better actor than Gregory Peck, probably. But he's not a film star in the same way. He doesn't have no, the same no. presence. Kathy. I don't know. I mean, I, I, who would the equivalent of Gregory Peck be? I guess it would be like. No, younger than he is now but like someone like george clooney or something mm. who is someone who can always play a stand-up guy you can always trust i guess yeah. george clooney is the nearest thing we've got to an old time old time <laughs> um hollywood star yeah um yeah i would say they're dying and, out aren't they so yeah well we know too much about them yeah. but uh but yeah but leave schreiber really jumped out for me of that cast of the 2006 ones when you see who they're playing um, <laughs> like Pete Postlethwaite is brilliant as Father Brennan. Um, yeah, and Mia Farrow is. is pretty good as Mrs. Baylock. So it's yeah. just, it, and it's and not again, that the driver's bad, but he's he, you don't have that central Gregory Peck, he's such a dependable, solid, patriarchal yeah. figure, mm. which is the secret of his success. You know, you know, he's playing a lawyer with no shade, he plays people with no shade, and that's his that's his job. That's his I mean. One thing they always talk about is how how poor the remake of Cape Fear is because they try and put shade in, and it kind oh, of okay. and it kind of right. ruins the movie. Whereas if you watch the original, it's good and evil. It's a, right. you know it's it's a it's a you know as soon as you make the Nick Nolte character a little bit shady, it takes away from the simplicity of the setup and. You know, and no matter how good the individual actors are, there's no need to mess around with that. Cape Fear was a perfect movie. Making right. it more complicated takes away from the sort of narrative urgency of it. Um, That's interesting. But the Omen remake, they just stuck to the script, but they didn't. They didn't sort of have someone who was <laughs> who was Gregory Peck in the middle of it all. <laughs> no, it's probably its biggest. They managed to do really well with the rest of it. Um. 
but Liev Schreiber is just a, is is a bit of a sort of empty hole in that cast. I would argue. Oh, well, I do you, love him. He probably leaned in and kissed Julia Styles rather than just kissing her fingers. <laughs> but, uh, we'll have to go back. Yeah. And see. Yeah, Leaves got kind of method. Uh, I think. I think. The, I think the great thing with the movie as well is it's really set up for Gregory Peck, who always wins, to destroy the ex to destroy the Antichrist. Mm. So it's really it's you know again because we know how it ends and it's so well known. But at the time, that would have been a shock. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that 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 Satan won. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Well, this and was in the, the this was before the time that horror movies had dark endings. Mm. You know? mm. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure I can think of an earlier example actually. No, no. Not off the top of my head. This, you know, from this point, they get darker and darker. Yeah, and it becomes something that you expect, but it, it certainly wasn't then. I mean, um, Rosemary's Baby's quite dark. Yeah, because <laughs> she accepts it, doesn't she? Yeah. Kind of. Oh, yeah. 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 So she's sort of uh, she's fully step with mother's wife, instinct step with kicks wife, in a bit, I guess. Mean. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then obviously the Exorcist. One of its things they always say is, you know, it, everything's fine because uh, uh, good wins against evil. Um, yeah. As long as you ignore the sequels. <laughs> yes. In which maybe, case, maybe I just we... fell down the stairs and found a passing serial killer. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> maybe we have the opposite problem here. Who knows? Okay, so we've only got a couple of minutes left. So would either of you like to say anything final about the omen? Um, I was going to say about the trike. Um because I, I oh, the tri- children the trike. on trikes, the shining. Yeah. It, it, it's well, yeah, the it's shining coming af- the shining coming afterwards. Yeah. Um, but but I just love the fact that um, he's going widdershins as well, which is a nice little touch. He's going anti-clockwise when he's going round and round in circles, um, which is very, which is the satanic way. Ian, I remember once working on a play with you, and you wrote the word widdershins into the script in the stage directions. I know that you're fond of that word, and then in the later draft of the script, you deleted that word and put a note saying widdershins. What was I thinking? <laughs> I did when you said that just now. I did have to kind of think. What does that mean again? <laughs> I just stay quiet. I thought everyone <laughs> knew because because of Discworld. So they have yeah. um, they have do they have clockwise and widdershins um, as the uh, as the directions instead of north and south and things. Uh, okay, I've read a couple of the books, but I've forgotten yeah. that detail. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But it, uh, he's he's doing the anti-clockwise is uh, is the satanic. But um, but again, but again, the um, yeah, the, the the trike bit is brilliant. It's another good. I mean, it's not obviously it's not a death, but it's uh, it's uh, it's a uh, it's a nearly death, and that's really really well done as well. Yeah. Well, uh, well the falling fishbowl. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the fact that it looks like they really dropped Lee Ramick off. <laughs> Something you know, it's not a stunt woman, it doesn't cut away. You see her smack onto the floor, and it's clearly, yeah. Yeah, Um, And when she and when she hits the and when she, you know, when she hits the ambulance later, that's pretty, pretty graphic as well. Brilliantly done. I um, I don't know if Lee Remick did that stunt on her own, but um, I'm guessing guessing she didn't. She, it's very much the classic classic, I'm a stunt person falling towards a big bag, yeah, suppose in the air. 
but, I did um, know that Calvin had the nosebleed from both falls because that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting what you said. The one thing I take away from this is they have they have really missed out on a narrative trick of they didn't confront um, they didn't they don't confront the ambassador with with his crime. Yeah. What? Why did he do that? For? Yeah. 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 No, nobody ever finds out, and I thought that was yeah. strange. And then he's dead. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been it would have been a pretty amazing scene to play if at mm. the heart of it he he has to admit, oh, yeah, yeah Sorry. your child's dead. By the way, I've seen our baby's body, and it's they killed him. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but um. But I guess just in the writing of the script, it rattles along and uh, there was no space for that. He doesn't ever get to see her again, does he? No. No, indeed. Uh, after, after he's, yeah, he kisses her on the hand and then he fucks off to Italy. <laughs> yeah. And then he talks to Cappy, her on the, on the blower Cappy, and then she's... Kiss your fingers. Yeah. And then, and then he's, uh, and then he's just like, she's dead. Stuff gallivanting. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Running around with David okay. Warner. So what I love David, David Warner. Us... David Warner is obviously amazing. Oh, he's brilliant, and it's kind of not quite the beginning, but an early point of a long, long, you know, genre and horror career, bless him, and he was always fantastic. Um, so yeah. we're down to the last minute or so. <coughs> Stella, do you yeah. want to add anything before we finish? Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> well said. That's it. That's, that's it. That's... Gentlemen everywhere listening to this, if you ever want to reassure anyone, just lean over them and say their name in a husky voice. <laughs> Over and over yeah. again, it always yeah. works. I must say, I must say as well. For some reason, it never stuck in my head before. But the um, the uh, mutilated, the mutilated priest slash monk, whatever he is, with his dodgy eye, his dodgy eye. Oh yeah, I, yeah. That had never stuck in my head before. And that was quite. <laughs> a sh- Sorry. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That part of the film is always a bit vague to me. Oh, I'll mention this. I did like the fact that again connecting to the hammer tradition. Not that priest, but, you know, the monk who's kind of stood there who basically does all the talking because he can't. That mm-hmm. bloke is the voice of lots of characters in lots of Hammer and Bond films, and yeah. it's really rare to see him actually on screen because he's usually dubbing someone else. But in this horror movie, both his voice and his face are seen. He's called Robert Rietti. I was really pleased to hear him. We feed him and take care of his needs. And we pray for his recovery when his penance is completed. But there's a bit later in the film where I think it's when uh, Ambassador Thorne drives out to kill Damien and the policeman sees him and, and, uh, and you know, radios ahead. And when the policeman talks, he's clearly talking in the voice of Robert Rietti. Standard four in pursuit. American ambassador. Whitest king. Heading north. Seven Hills Road. Over. He's like the number one dubbing actor. And it's like, we've got him on set, get him to dub someone. When we did Horror Express a while ago, Howard made a great play out the fact that basically all the voices in that, in that movie are uh, Robert Rietti. He basically speaks for all the men. Um, he was in demand, I'd say. Yeah. All right, my friends, I think we've come to the end of our time. So yeah. what a pleasure this has been. It's made me re-watch the movie that I've not seen for a long time and I really love doing so. We're going to come back to The Omen in a few weeks and talk about Damien Omen 2 from 1978, which neither of you... Well, Ian, you think you've sort of seen it before, Stella. You haven't and seen I watched half of it today. Um, it's, it's, it's good. Okay. And, and, 
Yes, young oh. Lance Henriksen. Yeah, and um, they're they're yes. all on Disney they're Plus. Luminary of this podcast. Yeah, and yeah. they're all on Disney Plus. Links will be in the show answers. notes. <laughs> God bless you all, or as Father Brennan says, I see you in hell. No, we will serve out our sentence. When the Jews um, return to Zion. <laughs> okay, folks, so I hope you enjoyed that. A few days after Stella, Ian and I had our chat, I was able to ring up our old friend Howard and see what he remembers about the omen. And following the chat with Howard, seeing as we've been so um, emphatic about the music of the omen in this episode... I thought we'd play some of the love theme from The Omen, which, although it doesn't appear as such in the film, on the soundtrack album has lyrics and is performed by composer Jerry Goldsmith's wife, Carol. And although the lyrics are not on the track in the movie, the theme itself is used very heavily in the film, and once you've heard the lyrics, it's very hard to unhear them so I thought we would showcase those here anyway here's Howard hello Howard hello Dan how are you I'm very well sir and all the better for hearing your voice how are you oh you're too kind thank you yes. hello listeners yes uh, yes, it's nice to be nice to be back. You know, I haven't done one of these. I haven't recorded one of these for about two years. You know, we've had seventeen prime ministers since then, <laughs> and they're all rubbish. But, so yes, all uh, an awful lot's happened since. Then. Well, yes, I won't go into detail, but it's been a very eventful two years for me. Sure. And uh, <laughs> so, but here I am. Yeah, still in one piece. Well, all we're right. we're incredibly glad that you're back. Oh, yes. I know that there have been listeners who've been missing you, and of course oh, we've them. been missing oh, you. Well, yes, I guess. No, well, you know that I'm, you know that I'm a fully um, card-carrying technophobe, and Indeed. I don't really understand technology and remote. And yes, did you see that thing on the news where all these scientists were saying that AI is going to be dangerous and destroy the human race? No, I didn't see that. Was that but on the yes, news? Some scientists said, yes, you've got to be careful about computers because they're going to become sentient and develop their own intelligence and they're going to destroy the human race, possibly. I mean, to be fair, people have been saying that for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, Westworld, you know, Westworld is going to happen sooner or later. Yeah, oh, Westworld I always thought so. Um, what was the, the particular event that sparked the scientists to now say this that was different? Oh, no, I, just, I just saw it on the news. I just, well, they're developing AI, aren't they? So, uh, okay. all this um, Alexa stuff. All right. Which uh, I don't understand. I don't understand any of that. I'm, I'm just, I'm just an, an old-fashioned guy, you know. I don't use uh, automated checkouts in supermarkets. I don't, I'm not into downstreaming or net. Thing or any of that sort of stuff. I just, <laughs> just, just, you know, I'm just a simple soul. Well, God bless you. We could do with more of those. As long as I can work the microwave, it's, I'm happy. Well, yes, that does help a lot. Although I always remember something that uh, uh, our friend Kirsty said to me once, which is just, "You shouldn't nuke your food." And that phrase has always stuck with me. But unfortunately, I'm not a good enough cook to be able to go without a microwave. I can't wait more than ten minutes for spaghetti bolognese. 
Right. I need, I need it, you know. And it's connected. It's uh, saves electricity, you know. Because we're having the oven on. So. Indeed. So, what are we talking about today? Well, Howard, this is a little bit like a bag of death oh. as, that we used to do, except, of course, that in the, the this situation, we know exactly the film that we're going to be talking about in advance, and, and I've already mentioned it to you. Um, Harry on Dick, yeah. If ever a film could be described as a horror movie, there is one. Um, to be fair, the movie we're going to talk about is a bit like a bag of death in that it is an object that is filled with many different types of death. Um, even more so than than many horror movies. The movie in question is The Omen, of course, and when Stella and Ian and I were talking about it, I couldn't help thinking, I wish Howard were here. I'm sure he'd have something to say about The Omen. Um, Yes, yes. When it was um, first on, actually, on ITV, because when they showed those big films in those days, in the early 80s, it was a huge event, and everybody watched it. But after they showed it, the next day in the papers... There's all this stuff from people saying um, that when they turn the telly off, their furniture moved around the room, or all their lights went off, and all strange things. As a man said, yes, I was sitting in my chair, and it suddenly moved across the room, but it's on record. And there's all this kind of, like, apparently paranormal phenomenon. Because people were into that sort of stuff back then, you know. It was the age of Yuri Geller and the Bermuda Triangle. So, um, so I remember that, actually, yeah. (laughs) I was just disappointed that our furniture didn't move across the room. That would have been quite exciting. No, yes, the omen... Is of course 
and uh, the character's not great. But then a script doesn't have to be great in a film like this. This film is all about set pieces. The script is there to connect the set pieces. That's what you remember from this film. It's those big, it's the deaths, basically. Yes. Chanting, getting speared to the ground, outside the church. It's lovely, lovely Lee Remick falling off the hospital roof. It's obviously David Warner having his head sliced off while he's picking up those daggers or whatever. Uh, yes, um, yes, incredible. The, nanny, the nanny's death, actually, is the one that now, I haven't seen it for a while, but the last time I saw it, I found it most unnerving, because she said something like, hey, Damien, it's all for you. Yes, yes. I thought, why, why is she saying that? Who's she, what does that mean, actually? Yeah, it's never explained. So that's the kind of one. But it's all, you know, it, it is really well done, and it's a really well-made film, and that's what's so good about it. Because horror films now are so minimal, and so low budget you don't get this sort of thing you don't get people like Gregory Peck and Lee Remick and people like that in horror films now you, you know that would have been a big thing then oh yeah because you know, um, Gregory Peck he would have been about 60 but he still perhaps he wasn't the big big star that he was but he was still a big star and Lee Remick was a very highly respected I mean you know that I love Lee Remick and I've always loved Lee Remick and I will watch anything that she's in and she's great um, they would be quite people would be quite impressed that those two stars were appearing in this in this kind of film. So, yes, it was very unusual. I think this was the first movie I ever saw Gregory Peck in, but I knew who he was, and it still might be. Um, I hate to say this, Howard, it still might be the only Lee Remick film I've ever seen. Have you never seen No Way to Treat a Lady? No, no I've never seen George that. Siegel. I've never seen that film. Did you say it was with George Siegel? Yes. Right, okay. Rob Steiger plays this madman who goes around killing people in disguise. Okay. That used to happen all the time. Well, yeah, perhaps it's before your time. But yeah, yeah, so, um, uh, we're talking, yes, you never seen it? Well, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, so, no, so I've still never seen any other Lee Remick film, but I was obviously aware of the magnitude of Gregory Peck. I think he was probably still alive when I saw this movie for the first time 20-odd years ago. Um, and then, um, you know, obviously I went on to, to see um, his other his, his other great movies and realised the kind of magnitude he has as a star. Um, yeah. But also he's... he's surrounded by actors who were more familiar to me um, and who have roots in the British horror tradition um, you know, Warner and Troughton and Billy Whitelaw um, and Leo McKern Leo McKern's um, Martin Benson Yes, Martin Benson who who was in Goldfinger and also played prosthetic Vogon Jelts in the yeah. TV version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and also, further down the task list, there's Robert Rietti. Yes, I, I thought that's of you as soon as I saw Dubbing somebody else at once. Exactly, that's what he looks like. And all this stuff were, were things that I'd never realised before. You know, my recent reviewing of the movie on Disney+, Plus, which was just delightful. Um, and even though I was quite critical of the movie, and, you know, especially of the script, as we've said, um, it's the, the, I really enjoyed it, and the experience and the storyline has stayed with me. It's thrilling. Uh, the music's incredible. Um, and it kind of makes me want to revisit visit 
this world, which is why we're going to go on and talk about the other Omen films, even though they may or may not maintain the quality. Um, it's a long time since I've seen them. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the original film is beautifully made. The only bit of it that I find um, underwhelming now uh, is, and this is something that I wanted to discuss with Stella and Ian, but I never got round to it, is the the sequence with the um the hellhounds in the graveyard because i've listened to the music soundtrack a lot and that particular cue the dogs attack is an epic piece um but when you look at the actual scene it's clearly not a real graveyard i understand why because it's a, a complicated stunt scene and they they could they, they needed to control all the elements but you know you can kind of see that the sky in the background is painted it kind of has a bit of a hammer film look to it which yeah. as you know i love yeah, but i, I love. just find that in this particular film it is at odds with the rest of the movie it feels yeah, like it's a scene out scene of... i remember less well than right some of the, others. Uh, the, the scene that's always kind of fascinated me is um, because I didn't know how it was done for a long time was the scene where Lee Remick pulls off the landing okay I, I don't I know how it was done people at university my friends at university saying do you know how that was done because I could see it looked a bit odd hmm. you know the way she Lee Remick turns and falls and hits the ground but there's something slightly strange about that but I can't quite tell exactly what's going on and people at uni well, I think and what I what's what what's immediately clear about it is that it is not a stunt person. You sort of see Lee Remick falling down. Lee Remick falling and hitting the ground. That's but you can't be really falling and hitting that. So what? And there's something kind of, and it's done in slightly slow motion and everything. Just something odd. I think it's the way you don't see the bottom of her legs. Right. Something about that that's a bit. Anyway, I saw this documentary. Uh, on the omen, narrated by Jack Palance, whose daughter's in the film as the nanny. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, and um, they explained it. Yeah, this is how they did that scene when he ran it. Jack Palance. And, um, <laughs> Sounded a bit like Peter Laurie <laughs> struck Vincent Price, but go on. <laughs> um, she's hitting the wall, of course, and then right, uh, yeah, the yeah. film turned, camera's turned. But that was very clever. That was a scene that always. It's mainly the murders that I remember, really. Um, I think that's what most people remember. Because uh, that's well, what these films are all about. It's, it's just about those big... You, well, certainly the sequels, uh, without having revisited them recently, the sequels are all built around that, aren't they? The regular death scenes. Yeah. Um, and Stella and I and Ian talked about it kind of being a proto-slasher movie in that way, the way it's kind of structured around the deaths. Well, it's got a kind of abominable Dr. Fives feel about it, in that oh, it's interesting. very elaborate. It's not just when it's being stabbed. Mm. There's a big build-up to it, and it's slightly bizarre, and slightly, um, uh, you know, it, it's a big moment when it happens. It's a bit like theatre blood kind of thing. Each death is, um, you know, it's not just like a slasher film where somebody's just stabbed in the night. They are decapitated, or they're full, or in the sequel, Luez, dear old Luez, goes under the ice, and the guy gets cut in half with a, mm. you know, there's a kind of bizarre <laughs> ingenuity to it all. Yes. You know, each one has almost kind of an operatic sort of, you know, it's a, it's a big moment. And uh, I, I kind of like the sequel. I think, it's, I think it's a bit less portentous than the first one. It's 
bit more tongue-in-cheek, and I kind of like that now. I wouldn't have said that a few years ago, but now I think I probably like that approach. It's a bit more fun, in a way. Okay. I mean, I, I think I, I might go with that. I haven't, I haven't rewatched it yet, and we'll obviously discuss that in the next episode or in a future episode. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I vaguely remember um, feeling that it was better in some ways. It's certainly very brisk. But going back to the original film, um, uh, is there anything else that... that you feel like you'd you'd like to say about the original movie? Well, no, it's, it's um, I think we've covered everything. Yes, it's just it's just very well done. It's just um, and of course a demonic child. I mean, it goes it's it's kind of born out of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. It's not as good as Rosemary's Baby. Mm. Rosemary's Baby is a great film. I don't like The Exorcist, so I don't I don't. But I think oh, right, I, okay. I, it's more enjoyable film than that. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah, fun, pacey, action, spectacle type movie. Yeah, it is a spectacle. Yeah. It's yeah. hokum, but it's extremely well-made hokum. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that summation. And if something's well-made, then it's entertaining. Yeah, and it still stands up, and I would say that I, I it really does, because I, I watched the remake as part of my preparation for this, and the remake, which has almost exactly the same script does not stand up in the same way, even though it's only 16, 17 years old I now. don't understand. If you're going to remake something, just do it a bit different. Kill people in a different way. <laughs> different situation or something. Why are you kind of recreating it exactly? The same with Psycho. I mean, I, I know Psycho was an exact... Yeah, they deliberately made it as close to the original as they could. The, the, the Omen remake, they had the option to make it very different, and they didn't. They chose not to. Well, I don't understand that, because what's the point? Because it's not going to be as good as the original. Everybody's going to know the story anyway, knows what happens. Mm. So, why, you know, that's the whole point of a remake, is to do things differently. Yes. I know they were making a lot of stuff. They were making all those spectacles and all those things a few years ago, and they were all bloody awful. The Wicker Man and oh God! Uh, yes, yeah. The Omen remake is is not um, that of that class of of disaster, but you no. know it's just very uh, bland, really, um, and it doesn't have the the grandeur of the original. Um, and much as I like Julia Stiles and Lee Schreiber, then it's not like seeing Gregory Peck and the Remick. No, uh, because they they didn't do they, they didn't do horror films. Yeah. They didn't do that kind of film, and then suddenly they are doing that kind of film. And that's impressive. Yeah, that's true. But William Holden in the second one, this is not somebody that you see in this sort of thing. So, whereas Lee Shrine was in all the screen films, and Julia Stiles, she must have done something. I don't know about horror films, but she was a big star of, like, teen movies, wasn't she? Yeah, so there's a crossover. The same kind of, of the same stature. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen that sort of star in that sort of film. I mean, to, and to be fair, there the probably was no one around that they could have used of that stature because there just aren't stars like that no, they anymore. Aren't, no, they aren't. Actually, there aren't. Really. Um, there, there aren't. 
Um, no, not not like that anymore. No. Um, mm. But well, like George Clooney or somebody. It's not. It's that's not funny. That's exactly what Ian said. Yeah, I think George Clooney would have been the nearest, and maybe yeah. by two thousand and six he would have had the magnitude already to do that, but he wouldn't have done it. But they're not. They're not. Clooney's a great actor. I, like, I really like George Clooney, but they haven't got that kind of magnitude. Mm. I think you have to have been around in Hollywood, the golden age, to have that sort of aura about you. That Gregory Beck and William Holden and Lee Remick had. But they've been in absolute classic films that everybody's seen dozens of times. It's, it's you know, um, it's different now. Yeah. It is, um, as Ian said, you know, we, we know too much about stars now. We, we, we know everything about everybody, but so... And stars will do horror films or thrillers or that sort of thing these days. It's more acceptable now to do them, so... Yeah, well, um, uh, The Omen remake has lots of actors who will do... who are very good but will kind of clearly do anything for the money. You know, yeah. it's got Michael Gambon and it's got David Thewlis... And the late lamented Pete Postlethwaite, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. So, good oh yeah, and very well chosen for the parts, but, but you know, but still, what's the point? Um, it's the pointlessness of it. I think that's what about these sequels. They're just pointless because it's just rehashing the same thing. If you're going to remake something, do it differently. Didn't you say? Because I was listening to what you and the others have recorded, and didn't you say something like? Yes, yeah. Uh, and that would have been an idea. And maybe kind of like do it in such a way that she might be imagining it or, or you know, she's being neurotic or something and, and we don't know whether it's real until... Do it a different way and have have, have people killed in a different way. You know, at, at least do that. At least... Yeah. Instead of slavishly copy the original, which everybody has seen is going to know what happens. Everybody's going to know what happens to the priest. Everybody knows, you know, it's there's, there's no... No, sadly, <laughs> that's how I feel. It was just cashing in on the date, really. It was yeah, yeah, I June thought, well, the 6th, 2006. Yeah. That's all about that now. That's all those people who haven't seen the original. Yeah, yeah. Young people. Indeed. Is anybody under 45. Well, I think we've said everything we can say about the omen. Yes, I think that's but, it. No, it's, it's good. I thought I might watch it again sometime now we've spoken about it, because... Uh, well, uh, as I say, I do think it, it holds up beautifully it's it's really entertaining and it's a, a great kind of classic blockbuster like yeah, jaws or something those, and i love all that stuff from the 70s they made a lot of the, the 40s and the 70s are the two greatest decades of filmmaking and for films and the 70s they made they made all these brilliant kind of really hard-hitting films like the conversation mm. of film which is a masterpiece and the godfather and deliverance and all that but they also made these wonderful big entertainment things like the sting and the and the Piper dreams in rings of misty white knowing in his sleep dreams only
who dare suppose they'd believe, believe in gentle ways and silver days and love that fills the air, a world where dreams come true. Well, there we go, everyone. There's the first episode of this series of our podcast, and that was our discussion of The Omen. Um, In future episodes devoted to The Omen trilogy, we'll reverse the order. We'll have a conversation between myself and Howard first, drawing on our memories of the movie without having rewatched it, and then we'll have a discussion between Stella and Ian and myself having seen the movie and referring to it in that context. But we hadn't quite worked out the formula for the first recording, so that's why it's in this order. Now, anyway, um, we've already recorded Omen 2. That was a lot of fun, and I hope you'll find that interesting. That'll be coming your way soon. As I said at the start, though, the next episode that will be released will be myself, Stella, Kirsty, and Ian talking about Midnight Mass. So join us for that one. In the meantime, sorry we've been away so long. Thank you for coming back if you've come back. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome aboard. I hope you'll stick around. I hope you can tell that we enjoyed recording this episode and we'll be doing a lot more. All right, everybody, we'll be back. Take good care. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by T.D. Velasquez, Dr. Stella Gaynor. Ian Winterton and Howard Whittaker. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at leecushingpod follow us on Twitter at andnowpodcast or at leecushingpodcast if you'd like to donate to us please visit patreon.com forward slash andnowpodcast And now, the podcast stops.